Welcome to episode 205 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother, what's happening, Jesse? Hey, brother, you preempted me. I did, I did. I, I was thinking about it. I was like, I got to get out in front of them. You preempted me. Well, we had, I would say, a banner week in the previous episode because we really fine-tuned, we tightened the affirmations and denial section in a way that I can only presume was a record because I think we ended up somewhere in the 12-minute mark. Yeah. So really, yeah, that was fast. It's all downhill from here. We're not going to do better than that. No, I don't know whether 12 minutes is the sweet spot or 40, uh, 45 <laughs> minutes is definitely not the sweet spot, <laughs> but I'm not sure what the proper, proper amount of time for affirmations and denials. We really are, have such is. great and gracious listeners though, because when I looked back and saw some of the commentary about that episode that was too prior where the affirmations and denials I don't want to say went on for longer than they should. I feel like affirmations and denials have a life of their own. They take on the space that is appropriate to whatever we're discussing. But yeah. with that said, what cracked me up is that people were so polite where they basically said, man, these went on for so long, but I'm not complaining. Yeah. And I'd be like, I'm complaining. I, I was the one talking and I'm complaining. It's okay to complain. So let's just get right into it. What are you affirming this week? So I'm pretty sure I have to double check the master spreadsheet, but I'm pretty sure that I've affirmed this before. Okay. But I'm affirming again, or possibly for the first time, or maybe for the third time, who knows, uh, crockpot meals. So nice. I'm not sure why Ashley and I did not come to this conclusion sooner. So we live in an, we live in an old an old home, an old building. So I'm always a little bit concerned about running the crockpot when we're not here, right? Especially after um, the the show This Is Us destroyed everybody's confidence in crockpots. Um, if you get that joke, it's hilarious. And if you don't, you're not Spoiler sure. Spoiler alert. I, I actually have not seen that show, but I uh, Yeah, think... I'm not going to go any further because okay. I don't want to. I don't want to spoiler alert it. Fair enough. I don't want to spoil it for people, but it was heartbreaking. I cried for ages. <laughs> wow. But now that Ashley and I are working from home more often, there's pretty much never a day where one of us is not working from home. So we've been utilizing the crock pot a lot more. And right now I can smell it in the background. My mouth is actually watering a little bit. I'm making like, it's called Heidi's Chicken Supreme. And it's from this five ingredient cookbook that I got. And it's literally like chicken, cream of chicken soup, bacon bits, and sour cream. Ooh. And you just like toss it all in there and let it cook for eight hours. And then you eat it and it's delicious. So if you don't have a crock pot, get a crock pot and pick up a good crock pot recipe book. And just go wild. I mean, it's so easy. You got leftovers. There's really no downside, except cleaning it. Cleaning a crock pot's always a little bit Yeah, it's a little bit of a challenge. Listen, I'm with you. I think the crock pot is in like a real, real bear market because when I grew up, my mother, your mother-in-law, especially in the Lord's Day, that was mm -hmm. like the crock pot day. So you'd jam some kind of piece of delicious meat into the crock pot. You'd go to church and then you come back from church. It was like magically food is ready. Oh, no. It's been slow cooked and it's tender and it's delicious. So you guys are on the right path here. And we're entering yeah. in, at least in North America, the right season for the crock pot because yes. it was like stews or soups or slow cooked meat. There, nothing beats like coming down, coming home on coming down, coming home. I, I'm like superimposing <laughs> my childhood into this description. Like, yeah, but like the wrong way though. You don't, you would come up. <laughs> 
True. You go I was up to about, Jerusalem. I was thinking like coming downstairs, like from, oh, from, from my like bedroom. Your, yeah, yeah, okay. But but in, into the kitchen and just having like this amazing meal. So, and to your point, it's like the great. It's almost like the cheater way. No, no offense, of course, of like making like an amazing meal with like not a whole lot of effort, like to make a meal where you come home and like to cook a piece of chicken or to to grill a piece of steak. Like it just takes time to come home from work and to have this ready to go is like the amazing gift that you give yourself, which really God gives you. Yes. Yeah. I, yes. I don't think that I could have said it any better than that. I'm I'm not sure you could say it that way again with how complicated that sentence was. No, it was, but this is our style, right? It's like probably, right. again, we could have just ended this affirmation with like, yeah, crockpot equal good. But instead, <laughs> like I had to go through several sentences of trying to like be the crockpot apologist. So, yeah. but well, is it possible? Like, have you ever considered that in some people's minds, like the crockpot is like the old lady's meal? I and that's, that's why it gets like the bum rap. No, I've never thought of that. Okay, those neither, people are dumb. Neither have I. Never mind. Okay. Yeah, those people are foolish. <laughs> Get that nonsense out of here. <laughs> this is where we've offended a lot of people. We've drawn the line, this, the line in the sand in lots of places, but clearly we're drawing it here. Yeah. Oh, right yeah. Here. This is this is definitely something that I'm. I will not tolerate that. That's enough. <laughs> so, what are you affirming today? Uh, okay. So I'm going to go in a totally different direction. And uh, this week I'm back on the affirmation train for music because I got brand new music, people. This is not just like music that's been out for a while. This just came out this past Thursday. So we're just talking days ago and it is more in my jam. I'm going to recommend a brand new album by a group called Fit for the King, which is an amazing name for a band. It's called The Path. Now, this is a hardcore album. So that means there's going to be a little bit of double bass action, a little bit of screaming. And by a little bit, I mean both, a lot of both those things. <laughs> so, but the great thing is, here's, here's the thing. And I'm going to be a little bit of apologist for just a second. And that is on this album, there's this, which I've been listening to nonstop since it came out. So I could recommend it. I could assess it and properly vet it and affirm it. There is a song called God of Fire. And this song, actually, the chorus goes bow down to the God of Fire. It's all about basically the purity represented God and how even though sometimes we desire for righteous living and righteousness in our own lives and then some kind of purity, some kind of forgiveness, that that comes at an extreme cost, that God is sovereign and perfect and altogether separate and otherworldly from us. And so I ask, if you're going to write a song called God of Fire, can that song really be quiet yeah, that's true. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> yeah, so so this is like, this is the beauty of this type of genre and how I think God uses all types of music for his glory. So here's what I would affirm in particular. Go look up the album The Path by Fit for a King. You will go then and select, I guess now I'm just commanding. You will go and select track number seven, <laughs> which is God of Fire. You will turn said track up to 11 And then you will just get ready to worship, which is what exactly you will do. So I'm recommending this album, but so as not to alienate anybody else, I I told you, I think I took on this new conviction where I was going to pair my music recommendations because some people might not be into that type of genre. So I was going to at the same time affirm something else as well. So I'm affirming the album to the end by Ghost Ship, which is decidedly not screaming and decidedly not hardcore, but is also as equally theologically rooted and pleasing. So whether you choose uh, Fit for a King because you're awesome or whether you choose Ghost Ship 
to the end because you were awesome, but maybe less so. These are both really great albums. So <laughs> I love that you, you just shake your head because at this point, you know how this goes. Yeah, yeah. I, I will not check out that band, but thank you for your recommendation. <laughs> I'm sure somebody will benefit from it. It just will not be me. It won't I, here's, be. here's the thing. Nothing, though. There's a secret part of me. Uh, I don't know if I admitted, admitted this before to you. I love when you check out the bands I recommend. And I love that every time <laughs> you'll be like, I started it in the car on the way to work and I got four seconds in. And it started like with immediate screaming and I had to turn it off. Yeah. I almost crashed my car last time. So if I do check this band out, it will be in the fully parked uh, with my tray table and seat in the fully upright position. That, so. that is fair. And this is where like, I'd love to hear other people maybe even just send us voicemails on this. You know, music is one of those things that's so for the church, often polarizing, both with our expression of how we use music on the Lord's Day, which is altogether its own separate category, but then like how we appreciate and use music in our personal lives. And so I'd love to hear people respond to that because, you know, for me, it's always been a matter of this is like all of the art that gives us that. I think we've said this before, but even if Marilyn Manson is going to use his music to scream against God, to deny him, to profane against him, that even in so doing, he's using the very medium that God has given him, which yeah. is an act of worship. And so yeah. like really the jokes on him. So I will often hear like a turn of phrase or a lick or some kind of drum beat in a song. And it will cause me to go into like, honestly, immediate doxology, whether or not that music is, would be identified as like secular is almost irrelevant to me as yeah. long as it is not like overtly offensive, but even it's offensiveness. Well, I will not listen to that. I'm not going to listen or imbibe those kinds of lyrics. It's amazing to me that the music, the beats, the sound, God by design, making noise to be beautiful and organized. That yeah. is in of itself. It all it does is speak to a creator who loves us and is beautiful and is majestic. So Music for me, I know that some people would say like Christians shouldn't listen to like harder music because this has like a stigma associated with it, which seems like it's distinctly not Christian. And, and I do push against that. So it's just wonderful to have this kind of music that's that's broad and deep. But yeah, that, that at the risk of making this whole episode about why we should all listen to hardcore music, which I, by the way, when we're ready for that episode, I have it sitting on the side here ready for us <laughs> to I'm go. Sure I'm going to do. I'm going to make a believer, everybody. But so that we don't get into that, let me, if it's okay with you, I'm going to like interject an audible here and go first with the denial because I actually want to leave your other denials at the end. Is that okay? Yes, that's fine with me. Okay, so here's what I'm denying against. This is more just uh, the season that especially uh, America is in right now, the United States of America in particular. And that is that we're about to enter or knee deep or whatever, too far along into, depending on who you talk to, our own political cycle. And so I just can't get away right now from all of these random text messages to my phone uh, that are of like a political nature. So I'm just denying against the fact <laughs> that I am getting a ton of political text messages, but also they're addressed to somebody that's not me. So like, obviously <laughs> like the number is out there, but also like the state in which I live is different than the actual prefix of the the number and exchange that I own. So it's even more strange because I love how people think that they're getting after me because they'll, they'll basically spoof like a number that uses like the, I have a New Hampshire number, so they'll spoof that number, but I live in Pennsylvania. So like if anybody calls from me from New Hampshire, they're going to be in my phone directory because those are the only people I know and care about <laughs> actually having me. So it's, it's just so funny. So it's like weird. And I'm, 
I kind of get annoyed about it and I shouldn't be annoyed about it. But are you, are you, is this common? Like I actually haven't asked, are lots of people these days getting all these crazy text messages about political stuff? Yeah, I get the same thing because I, I live in New Hampshire, but I have a Minnesota exchange. <laughs> That's so right. all of my we're trying to get a hold of the auto owner for your extended warranty. It's either about a car that I haven't owned for 10 years that I bought used in Minnesota or they're just scammers. So, yeah, I feel you. But what's really funny is uh, I'm a registered voter in New Hampshire. So my phone number is out there. So I'm getting legitimate political text messages. And I actually like respond to the person sending the text messages and engage in conversation. And it's funny because I won't I won't leave them alone until they finally say to me, please stop texting me. And that there's just maybe it's my sin and pride. I, I don't know. But there's a strange sense of satisfaction when I get when somebody texts me and says this person stands for education and, and children. And I'm like, do they stand for protecting children in the womb? And they're like. They stand for women's productive rights. And I'm like, so no. So so those women in the womb, <laughs> they don't count, right? Th- not those women's rights. And that's usually when they're like, look, I'm just a volunteer for this campaign. I, I can't answer questions about this. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's funny the way that, like, phone numbers used to be so regionally located. Right. And now they've just, like, propagated all across the country, you have no idea when, like, where a person actually is based on their phone number. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So let me ask you one more follow-up question because we're just having so much fun with phone numbers. And that's apparently the thing that we do on this cast. Have you ever had this experience where, you're, let's say, like, you're in an establishment and they ask you for a phone number. It's somebody asking you in person to give your phone number. And you start to give it. And it's clear that they expected you were going to start with the exchange rather than the area code. And then they give you one of these like, "Ah." and you can tell like they're deleting back because they're like, I thought you were going to say what the common state, you know, area code was, but you didn't. Has that happened to you? Uh, yes. So much so that I actually start to say when they ask for the phone number, I say area code six, five, one. Uh, but I also am on the other side of that on like a daily basis because people will call the hospital and I'll say, can I have your phone number? And they'll start going into a number and they'll only give me seven digits. And I'm like, is that area code 603? Is that 802? And they 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 go and like they're annoyed that they have to give me the area code. And I'm like, first of all, we live on the border of, of an area code. So like right. there's no reason that I would know just off the top of my head whether you're in New Hampshire or Vermont. Like Vermont is 15 minutes away from me. So you could be equally on either side of the border. But then also Massachusetts is only, you know, two hours and Connecticut's only two hours. New York is less than an hour. So I don't understand why people don't realize that. But yeah, area codes are weird. They are weird. And nowadays they're in some ways like almost outmooded, right? Because you could feel like you could just say, give me any combination of numbers because all numbers are basically portable these days and you can live anywhere. And wherever you start or happen to get that number is almost irrelevant. And my wife, actually, she has a number from a neighboring state because that number initially came from her employer and the phone is no longer associated with the employer, but she's kept the number because everybody has yeah. it. So it's like, we just, everything is just like all, all jumbled. So I, I've often wondered like, is everybody in the same boat? And, and also I should say, just so we don't get all kinds of hate mail, certainly not complaining about the country in which we live. It's a beautiful thing that we have the right to be able to express our opinion and our judgments by way of voting. It's just when I get the text messages, that's like, Hey, Stephanie, I'm going to be like, no, stop it. (laughs) I get asked to vote in Minnesota elections still. 
I get I get political messages and I always respond and I'm like, are you encouraging me to commit voter fraud or what's going on <laughs> are here? Because clearly I'm not I don't live in Minnesota. Yeah. The other thing that's funny, the other day I called someone or someone called in to the hospital, to the department I work in, presumably to schedule an appointment. And the, they, they literally I, I answered the phone and literally the first thing they said was, can you please call me back? I don't want to pay long distance. <laughs> wow. And I actually was like. Like, it took me a second to be like, long distance? Like, I didn't even know that was a thing anymore. But then the the reason I say presumably they were calling in scheduled appointment is because they hung up so fast that I didn't get any information from them, including their phone number. <laughs> oh my so word. I had no idea. I had no way to get back in touch with them. Presumably they weren't calling from New Hampshire or it wouldn't have been long distance. I, That's I don't know. true. I just you said know, presumably a lot. Here's the thing. I am increasingly surprised by how much old technology or contracts or relationships like hang on for instance, and I'm, I'm not even going to change names. I'm not going to use names to protect who I feel are the guilty in this situation, but I have family members in my extended family that still use Juno.com for their email and pay <laughs> for that. Right. They pay yeah. for email. I, 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 like, I, I don't even know how that works anymore. Like, I don't know if there's just like a dozen of those people that pay for it. And Juno is like, this is fantastic. Like, we're not going to stop these people from paying. We'll just keep them on for as long as they're willing yeah. to pay us, even though they could go to like Gmail and get three times, four times as much of space for free. I mean, it's it's not as if like Juno is necessarily protecting your rights more than Google. There's there's a lot there that we can yeah. unpack. But I'm increased. I'm always surprised at like how these things tend to persist. So yeah, somewhere, 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 somebody is paying for long distance still. And I know it, it's incredible. Like it makes us sound like we're, we're jerks. Like we're these snobs with technology, but like at what point, just like we would, we always joke about like how long before there's like a statute of limitations on your ability to spoil something. Like how long do you yeah. have to say to somebody like you don't need to pay for long distance anymore. Right. Like there are other yeah. options. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, I didn't even know. I got, I legitimately did not know that long distance was a thing anymore, but apparently it is. So I have to so, ask, did you ever get in touch with that person? No. I mean, I, I'm sure they called back and talked to someone else, but they didn't talk to me. Wow. I have no idea. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. I would have loved to call them back. I always, always, always call back people when they get disconnected. Like I, I go out of my way to figure out who it was and I yeah. could not. I probably spent 25 minutes trying to figure out who this person was. I was trying to like get them to pull up like the call records from our phones. I couldn't, I could not figure out who it was. Now you work like in a life and death industry, quite literally in many cases. And so yeah. in this particular instance, do you think you would have been compelled or convicted to take some time and say, listen, we need to schedule this appointment. That's a, that's important. But what we first need to talk about is your calling arrangements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You really should get a cell phone and you don't have to pay long distance on those anymore. Well, Even if you don't get a cell phone, like who has a landline that's, that's being charged long distance. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And what do they do when all the people they know that have out of state cell phone numbers, do they call them and say, call me back? I'm, I don't want to pay long. I mean, there's so many questions that I have, but we don't want to turn this into another 45 minute denial. No, 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 no. And Sorry. I've already, I've got Sorry. one more that Sorry. is already a little borderline. I need to, I, so I need to kick it off to you. So what are you denying this week? So I, I'm, before I say my denial, I want to make sure that I'm understood well, um, I'm denying this phenomena. There's there's two elements to this. I'm denying on one hand 
Christians delighting over the death of the wicked, right? And on on the same hand, maybe on the other side of it, or on the other hand, I don't know, whatever whatever hand analogy we're going to talk about. I'm also denying Christians delighting in the lives of the wicked. Um, And so specifically, I'm talking about the death of of, uh, Chief, not Chief Justice, but Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Everybody knows uh, by now that that she passed away in her home from, I think it was pancreatic cancer, which is a terrible, terrible disease. And immediately Facebook lights up with with, um, non-Christians who are so thrilled about the life uh, and the, the, the legacy of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and then on the other side, Christians who are gleeful and delighting over the fact that this person is dead. And right. both of those responses are understandable, but the one I'm concerned about is is Christians who are expressing like joy at the death of a sinner. And and I want to be clear here: there's a difference between being glad that someone's wicked ways have perished and being glad that the wicked themselves have perished. Right. Now, look, looking back, uh, you know, from from eternity future, if we can we can speak that way, looking back, we're going to see that God's justice is just. We're going to understand and, and comprehend how his ways were perfect in maybe not completely, but in ways that we don't now. So I'm not saying we won't look back and, and praise God for his justice, but to delight in the death of the wicked is itself, I think, a wicked thing. Right. But all of a sudden, and I don't know if it's because of this particular figure, all of the sudden I noticed a lot of Christians that I, I thought were uh, theologically conservative evangelical Christians, all of the sudden I'm seeing them just praising and gushing over Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I want to be clear. Um Justice Ginsburg did do and did advocate for a lot of things that were just straightforward justice issues, mm-hmm. right? So, so right. you and I are both complementarians, right? But a, a woman, a, a woman working out in the field, out in business, take that woman and compare them with an equally qualified, equally competent man. There's no reason why that woman should be paid less. Right. So, so when, sh- when justice Ginsburg fights for equal wages, equal opportunities in the secular arena, I- I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. Now I do have some concerns, you know, some, some of the studies have shown that the, the so-called wage disparity between men and women, when you actually account for, um, differences in education, differences in how how many years a person has actually contributed to the workforce, all of those things. The the so called wage disparity actually is not as vast as it seems. So there's that to take into account. I want to acknowledge that. But in a hypothetical situation where you have a man and a woman who are equally qualified, have been working in the same job, have contributed the same amount of years, have the same education, and the only the only difference, and the reason this has to be hypothetical is because it only really exists in hypotheticals. No two candidates are ever identical. In that situation, that sh- those person those persons should receive equal wages. Their gender should not necessarily play into wage discussions at all. But there's also this legacy that Justice Ginsburg has, where she attacked the rights of the unborn to live in the name right. of women's reproductive freedoms, women's choice, so-called choice. Um, she attacked traditional family units, traditional family structures that as Christians, we don't even only not only do we believe are the best arrangement for the flourishing of society, which they are, but we believe they were instituted by God for his own glory and for the flourishing of human human society. So 
I get very concerned when I see Christians uncritically celebrating the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, equally, if not maybe a little bit more than I am concerned when some Christians uh, zealously are enthusiastic about the fact that this person has died. I don't know many Christians that are really like reveling in the fact that like she was an enemy of God and now she's she's no longer alive and, and all of the all of the uh, theological consequences that come along with that, all of the implications. I don't know many that I've seen that would fall into that category, but I think sometimes we do come off as though we are really, we're really celebrating the death of the wicked rather right. than the fact that their wicked ways have perished. And, you know, I, one of the first Psalms that I memorized was Psalm one, and it, it sort of closes by, by aff affirming this idea that um, the eschatological hope of God's people is that God knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. It's right. not saying the wicked will perish. That's certainly true. But the hope of that passage, the eschatological hope that's presented in a, a psalm that really frames up the whole Psalter is not that the, the, the bad people are going to die. It's that the, the wickedness that not only creates wicked people, but is created by wicked people in this sort of feedback cycle, that wicked way is also going to perish. Right. So I, I just, I think we need to really think carefully, you know, a really good example of how I think is a good way to handle this is Al Mohler did a whole special episode on the briefing, briefing about, um, Justice Ginsburg, her life, her legacy. And he had some laudatory things to say. He had some praiseworthy things to say, some things to point out. But he also was very honest and critical about the things that we should uh, not praise and not be thankful for. Right. I think that's a really helpful discussion to bring up because what happens is in many places, I think Christians, maybe even especially Reformed Christians, I think we like to pride ourselves that we have a nuanced perspective that we're willing yeah. to be discerning. But here is a place in which our proclivity is to not be discerning. It's to go to the extremes. And I haven't seen it so much with, you know, this particular death, but I have seen on sometimes on social media among Christians, how there's even like this little bit of tendency to be tongue in cheek. Yeah. With, let's say, let's, let's say in particular, like celebrities that have been, uh, particularly like against God or profaning to say something like so-and-so has finally bend the knee to God. Yeah. And the implication is there, Oh, well there before you get to the punchline, Oh, that somehow God has reached out and saved them. And then it says instead, like, well, they've now died. Now they're standing, you know, before God right. in judgment. And there is something within that, like embedded in that or impounded within that, that seems to indicate that there's a celebration, that this has taken place, right. that the person is now being punished. Now they come to the reality, which I always had in my own life, that they're only getting to experience in their death. Right. And so that is a problem because if we go to this just scriptures generally, I think we're easily, all of us in some respects, drawn to like Ezekiel 18.23, which says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. I mean, that's a right. question that the scripture poses to us. And so I think God wants all people to obey his summons to repent and believe in the gospel and so be saved. In giving that quote from Ezekiel 18.23, we're not saying that God is like some kind of frustrated lover that he's trying to woo all these people and he wishes right. that they would just believe. And in light of this... The church, of course, is called to preach the gospel indiscriminately to all people. That's something that you and I have talked about. We've been, I think, on record many times in saying to the ends of the earth. But sadly, all men without exception have a heart of stone 
and in their willful blindness turn a deaf ear and refuse to believe and follow Christ. So God has no pleasure in seeing a humanity so unyielding and inflexible and in their rebellion against him. This like saddens God, I think. And indeed, I yeah. think it angers him. I'm not, again, I'm not putting against the, the immutability of God, but just merely saying that in terms of our understanding of how he responds to these things. But even though all natural men reject this call to faith in Christ, God is yet merciful. So instead of giving all of us what we justly deserve, which of course is his wrath, he gives life and pardons more ill-deserving sinners than any man can count. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that should really shape how we look at these instances. And the, and the thing that I, I really appreciate about you bringing this up is because in this political time, in this sphere of asserting and discerning politics, what I struggle with is when we look at a life like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and we say we can at one point celebrate the things that she did to highlight, let's say, inequality between the genders. At the same time, in doing so in a, Rome, in a truly Romans 1 way, she went so far as to say, well, really, that true assertion of rights is to say that a woman may choose to kill her unborn right. child. My question, I guess I want to ask you is, at what point do we say that we have to have a hierarchy here? That in yeah. terms of like our judgment, we have to latch on to things which God has prioritized. And in that priority, we have to apply a label of wickedness that yeah. can be so pervasive as to override those other things in our judgment if our judgment is trying to be biblical. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a good question. And, you know, th there's there's a, a rhetorical strategy that people use. And, and it's funny because people use it on both sides. And I, I have uh, come to call this the Hitler had a dog fallacy. Okay. And, and so, so it happens in two ways, right? There's, there's the people who want to say there's a little bit of good in all people. Right. And, and so they say even Hitler had a dog that he took care of. Right. But then there's also the flip side of that where we sort of look at it. Well, even Hitler had a dog. Like we, we say it like even the good things that a person does can be, can be so tainted by evil that we don't even think about it. Sure. And both of those things are fallacious, right? Every person, Christian, non-Christian is a mixture of, um, of things that are resid for the non-Christian residual effects of the image of God that result in a form of civic righteousness, right? Having a dog and taking care of a dog is, is a good thing. Caring for the animal that's under your care is a good thing. Uh, and then in Christians, there's this mixture of, um, of, of purity and, and corruption, right? We're sanctified in the whole man through all, right. all the parts, yet there's also a corruption that remains. And so I think we have to be careful because those two realities are always to be held in tension. There's no Christian on this side of eternity that does everything out of pure motives. We, we are never loving the Lord, our God with our whole heart and soul and mind, even for a moment. There's no Christian that, or there's no non-Christian that is only ever utterly evil that never, never does anything that results in some sort of, of civic righteousness or, or outward apparent righteousness. Um, so we have to be careful. But I do think that, that you're right. There are times where a person's wickedness, and I'm, I'm not, I, I will not make a statement specifically about uh, where I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg falls in this. Because I, don't, I don't know her legacy well enough. I don't know her personal life well enough. I just, I'm not in a position to make a statement of that. But there are times where people... We need to look at it and say, you know, it doesn't matter what good they may have accomplished because their wickedness and their evil out outweighs all that. And right. this is where the Hitler has a dog fallacy, I think, is probably a legitimate use. It really doesn't matter that Hitler had a dog that he treated really well 
because he's Hitler. Right. He's and I am not saying read me clearly. I am not saying Ruth Bader Ginsburg is Hitler. That That's not I'm not making that comparison at all. And in fact, I'm making the opposite comparison is we have to be careful not to take someone who doesn't reach that point and treat them as though they do. The 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 uh, young uh, person who is kind of sowing their wild oats, but uh, is an Eagle Scout. Right. That's not the same as someone who's a mass murderer. We have to recognize that there's a gradation. there. Sure. But I think all of us instinctively know that if someone went, yeah, I mean, Charles Manson, I mean, he did a lot of really bad things. But look at this. Like he he made some really great music. Like we'd all look at that and go, that's disgusting. Like right. that's a disgusting conclusion to draw that because he made some good music that we should we should celebrate that music even though it came along with all these horrible atrocities that he committed. So I think you're onto something that we have to be careful. And I think here's where I think I, I want to sort of wrap up that line of thinking is we don't know what happens in a person's last moments. We don't, we don't know. And, you know, someone who has lived in America for their entire life has heard enough of the gospel that, that they should be able to tell you in some form that turning to Jesus results in salvation, right. according to Christians, right? And we don't know what the last fleeting moments of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life was. We don't know if in her last moments she cried out to Jesus for forgiveness, internally or externally. You know, the, the, the example that comes to mind is Steve Jobs, right? His last words, I guess, apparently, was it pancreas cancer with Steve Jobs too, I believe I think? so. That was just a coincidence, but he, he sat up in bed and said, oh, wow, and then died. We don't know what he was saying, oh, wow, about. It could have been a hallucination based on, you know, the drugs or the, the medication or the lack, any number of things. Or it could be that he finally came to the realization that this God he had been an enemy of, that he was resisting and fighting his entire life, somehow had wooed him and had made him his own. And he said, right. it could have been, oh, wow, I'm, I'm a forgiven saint now. And then he passed into glory. We don't know. Deathbed conversions can be genuine, right? Anyone looking at the thief on the cross right. would have said, well, he stands before a holy God now. And we don't want to be that person who says that about someone who may actually be standing before a holy God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I, I don't know enough about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I, I don't to think whether that's realistic or not. Charles Hitchin is this another example. People celebrated right. when he died. But you know what? Charles Hitchin's probably heard the gospel more than any other atheist in the for, country. For sure. I mean, I've got my concerns with Doug Wilson, but Doug Wilson evangelized the crap out of that guy. He tried, I mean, his whole, he had a whole period of their lives that they were touring together doing these public debates. He held the gospel all the time. Maybe he converted last moment. We don't know. Maybe he right. was the thief on the cross. We just have to be careful, I think, to reserve that judgment. We can't know. Right. And it, well, and at the center of, I think, what your denial is, is not necessarily about trying to determine for ourselves what the eternal destiny of this person was right. by reflection of the life that they lived 20 or 30 years or five days before they died. But the sense of how do we, what do we do with that death? Because again, social yeah. media wants to celebrate and it does it in such a way where it pushes so hard on, again, in this instance, this idea of fighting for equality that we misunderstood the point of what equality was, especially with respect to human rights and those of unborn children. That's what makes this so hard. And when I see Reformed Christians, oftentimes I think, again, the natural place, the normative position is to respond in such a way to say, I'm defending God's sovereignty by celebrating this person now is in judgment where they thought that they were once right. They're right. being confronted with the fact that they were wrong. 
And we don't know that for a fact. Right. We know, of course, what is right and wrong by way of God's scriptures in which he tells us the truth about reality. But in the sense of like whether or not what their eternal destiny is, I think you're right. There's a way in which that we should automatically be conservative or hesitant to try to make that judgment. While at the yeah. same time, I think trying to be, I would say, sensible in a biblical sense of what it means to celebrate or not. In other words, you know, I know there are plenty of people that were, were dramatically impacted by the work that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did, especially again right. with respect to honoring women. And you and I would like, we have strong women in our lives whom we love yeah. desperately. So there's, there's no doubt that I think that our perspective is that God has created all women, of course, to play a, a profound role in all of right. his creation. And that according to the biblical mandate, with right. that said. And yet at the same time, what do we do with these issues where it seems like it's unfair for Christians to say, no, but this particular thing was wicked. We can't get beyond this right. thing. That in, in almost championing what would be equality, we've gone so far as to say that that equality can promote murder. And I realize that even people perhaps hearing what we're talking about here, or maybe just what I've said, would bristle or be triggered by that. Right. But what I'm struggling with in this political climate is where do we literally say, this is where we're going to draw the line. Like I'm convicted here and I will not go any further. And I must use this language because this demands the kind of hard and fast edge that right. is necessary to emphasize that there is an actual line or a border here. And yeah. so I think it's really hard for how do we, because also like, would you say that our culture has a, as a strange thing, or maybe this is my words, I would say has a strange thing for when people die somehow trying to make amends with what they've done and to honor them because they are merely dead and therefore cannot yeah. represent themselves anymore. Yeah. Justification by death alone. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, first of all, I think rather than have another 45 minutes in aisle, we're just going to roll with this. So <laughs> here we go. We'll, we'll get to the topic we were going to talk about next week. It's not going anywhere. So I, I think you're, you're probably right. Like there's an instinct and I actually think it's probably a good instinct to for a time um, to I don't want to say overlook, that's not the right word, but to hold back a little bit on some of the critical things that sure. a person has said, you know, being critical of someone. Um, you know, I think of Rachel Held Evans when she uh, died very suddenly mm. last year, I think um, Rachel Held Evans was a terrible theologian. She was an enemy of the church. I, I feel pretty confident looking at the things that she said and, and the theology she advocated saying that she was not actually a Christian. Um, nevertheless, you know, especially in this world where if I, I blast a critical note out on, on my blog, there's a real good chance that her husband has a Google alert that's going to send that straight to his inbox, right? Even a Facebook post can trigger a Google alert if it's got enough of a, enough of a, uh, trending feature and it's public. And so th there is an element that there's an appropriate time to stand back and mourn and say, Rachel Held Evans was a person created in the image of God who, Absolutely. um, who, uh, you know, in, in the, the, the unique way that Calvinists can say this, who Christ died for or died because of, um, not, not disregarding, you know, particular atonement, obviously, but there is a sense in which we have to recognize that the death of Christ is the result of the sin of, of mankind. Right. Um, the atonement is, you know, located and 
and the scope of the atonement is the elect. But the death of Christ was brought about because of the fall. And the fall is something that is, is common to all men. So there's an element where we have to step back and say, you know, there's there's a time and a place to let the mourning people mourn and to let the grieving people grieve without having to also deal with, with this other element. But then now we have to also recognize that there's a time to be critical, right? You right. know, it's funny. This happens every year. This last year, I actually didn't do it. But Martin Luther King Jr., Okay, I know this feels like a really strange pivot, but Martin Luther King Jr. is a perfect example, I think, of what we're talking about, right? He uh, he was a champion for justice. He uh, accomplished things that I don't think people could dream of accomplishing in their own lives in terms of actually affecting societal change. Um, but he was a serial adulterer. He uh, plagiarized his doctoral dissertation. He denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he did all sorts of other unethical things. So every year on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, there's joyous celebration of the life of this great man. And then there's also Christians that want to say, yeah, but he wasn't actually a Christian. So, yeah, right. we can say he was, you know, we can say he uh, he did good things. And that in terms of civic righteousness and affecting change, that the image of God, you know, pushed him forward to do certain things. And that was also informed by some knowledge of what Christianity teaches, but don't call him a Christian hero. And every year there's this fight. And, and so I think we have to, we have to be able to be critical, right? I have to be able to say to my progressive Christian friend and right. Christianity and liberalism are two different things. They're not the same religion in two flavors. There's Christianity and there's liberalism. Right. We have to be able to push back and say, wait a second, I can affirm that Martin Luther King has a legacy that is a good legacy in certain elements, but it's not a Christian legacy. And I think, you know, with someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's a little bit clearer for us because she made no claim to be a Christian. She made no claim to follow any sort of religious conviction that I know of in terms of Christian faith. So it's a little bit more clear cut for us, but there still is a time for us to say, you know what, right now is not the time to um, harp on this. We need to give, give the body some time to be put in the ground, right. not to be crass, but like right. you don't, you don't go and like pound on someone about the, all the faults of someone at their funeral. Um, so I think this impulse to sort of like uh, canonize or do a hagiographical, right? Like sainthood writing type stuff about someone after they die. I think that impulse actually has some good, uh, some goodness rooted in it, but it also can go too far. When we start to call what God calls wicked, we call it good. And right. I think that's, that's where a lot of Christians are tripping up right now. And, and I won't even just say it's, it's progressive Christians or liberal Christians. There are, there are people that I know to be conservative evangelicals who are saying things like, let's celebrate the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And they either don't know uh, which I have a tough time thinking this, but they either don't know that that legacy involves advocating and codifying into law and defending a woman's right to murder her unborn child. They don't know that, or they don't think that that is important enough to say, maybe we shouldn't paint this person to be a hero when they supported such a wicked, evil thing. So I think there, there's right. an impulse that we have to be careful of on both sides, but you know, it is tricky too. And I think that this has a lot to do with thinking about how we as Christians are citizens of two worlds. This wasn't, yes. I, I don't want to go into a big discussion about two kingdoms theology because I'm not, I'm not equipped for that right now. But as Christians, we inhabit two kingdoms. We, we're citizens of the world in terms of this is where we live, right? We're resident aliens. So we have, we have obligations to this present world. 
But more importantly, and more fundamentally, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Right. But that doesn't mean we don't interact in both worlds. So we have to we have to be careful and navigate those in in nuanced ways, I think. Right. That's why I think this is like so timely is as we're going into the season of trying to process what it means to be, especially again in the United States of America, like good citizens or to have some kind of understanding of what, of it, what is our civic duty and not yet conflate what it means to be a Christian right. and to have civic duty. We've talked about this at length before and people should go back and I think listen to those conversations with respect to things like voting and understanding our political responsibilities. Right. But, and that's more what I'm getting at is, is it possible that one thing does override another? In other words, I've heard Christians say, I've actually written words from Christians who have said things like, well, when it comes to our faith, it should inform, but it should not define how we approach politics or how we yeah. understand people, or how we judge our neighbors or how we process what it means to live. And I think that is in fact, the problem is yeah. does Christianity define who we are when we speak about regeneration? Is it a complete redefinition of the personhood? And then also by extension, how we think, what we believe, how we feel, if all those things are true, then it ought to really redefine. It's not just about somehow slapping on a label or there's like some kind of informing such that it might give you pause in the way that you think about something. I think our world, the way in which God has created the order of things, the taxonomy and the hierarchy of things is that there is an order and there are priorities. And right. so even in God's law, we find that there are priorities. So how do we bring those priorities to bear when we make judgments either about like our civic leaders or we make judgments about how, in fact, what we live, where we play, where we spend our money, what we do with our time, like all these things have something built into them that is in hierarchical order. There is a yeah. priority. And so at the end of the day, when we're processing someone's death, I think the, the special domain of the reformed Christian is that there ought to be some kind of sense of humility and conservatism with respect to the fact that if we believe that God is sovereign and that he may save, and that he can save and that he does save, then what that means is at the end, we often cannot do a hard and fast judgment if we do not know what those even final moments are like with respect right. to the point you made. And yet at the same time, we also need to make a hard stance that, you know, like a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. And so we need to make a special statement about what we think are the outworkings of somebody's life, because right. those things as well require that we ought to place some kind of judgment. And, and I would say like a hierarchical judgment. I think that's what's hard is like, what are those things? What are like the main priorities of God? And one of yeah. the things that I've always struggled with and had to wade through is a special respect, again, in the United States to the, our understanding of the rights of unborn children. I just can't get around this because the scripture seems so fundamentally and particularly clear about standing up for those who have the smallest amount of rights who cannot defend themselves. And so we think that in the context of where the scripture was, was written, that concept was made abundantly clear, even to like the first disciples. And though yeah. perhaps it wasn't reflected around abortion in particular, in our day and age, we find the same type of debate happening with respect to those who cannot contend or stand up for themselves. And so whether that's widows or orphans or those who might be in either of those categories or imminently in either of those categories, 
what is our responsibility of Christians? And I think that responsibility doesn't extend just to like, let's say how you vote or how you speak. But in times like this, when people are trying to push forward or promulgate some kind of agenda for somebody's life and celebrating that, where is the appropriate time to stand up and say, yes, I hear what you're saying. And there's a lot in that that I can respect. But there are parts in this which stand so much against the Bible that I refuse to celebrate them. I can't even do this part in parcel or in whole. I have to stand up and say what she did was wrong. And I think in the moments of following death, it's almost hard to say to anybody what they did was wrong, right? Like that's kind of what you were saying. It's almost hard. And and maybe this time isn't the right time to push that forward with a great deal of magnitude. But is it the Christian's responsibility to make that point? Yeah. And, and yes, it is. And I think, you know, when we, we go back to this concept that we have this dual citizenship, right? I bring with me into my, my resident alien citizen citizenship in the world. I bring with me into that everything that it means to be who I am, including the fact that I'm a child of God who is obligated to obey my father's commands. Right. right? So, so that's, that's where I think some people, there are some people who in the two kingdoms view who we, we should do an episode on this somewhere in the near future, but there are people in the two kingdoms camp who actually draw that distinction way too firmly where, where it's like, well, yeah, you're a Christian in the kingdom of God and in the world, like you just got to follow like the civic responsibilities. Right. And those two things aren't related to each other. I don't know many, I couldn't think of one off the top of my head, but I know that I've read people where I'm like, wait a second here. But on the same side, you know, we're not theonomists. We don't want to bring uh, the, the entirety of the old Testament law to bear on the current society, including the judicial and punishments in the old Testament. But all of it, all of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be holy and just and to obey God, all of that comes with you wherever you go. And it's funny. I used to say this to employees, right? Is there's this common thing, like you got to leave your work, your home life at home, right? Don't bring it with you. And and I would have people come in and they'd be like, I'm really sorry. You know, I I just, I know I got to leave this at the door. And I would say, you can't leave it at the door. Like you're one person. It's silly to think that your life at home could be falling apart and it's not going to somehow affect your life at work as though you have two lives. Right. Actually, it just strikes me that that's sort of like this weirdness story, like anthropological Nestorianism, where we think we can divide our lives up into these separate personas where we're one way at work. We're one way at home. We're one way when we go into the voting booth. We're one way, you know, when we write our blog or when we interact on Facebook. Right. None of that is true, right? We're, we're one person. And although we may behave slightly differently in different contexts, and I think that's fine. There's, there's appropriate behavior in different contexts. The, the flip side of that is that appropriate behavior is always informed by what is true, good, and right, right? right. So, so we can't just say, well, yeah, I mean, on Facebook, when I'm talking about her political achievements, I can celebrate everything that she did. And I don't have to I'm not accountable to also recognize the the evil and atrocities that she enabled with her her judicial activity. We, we don't have the liberty to do that. That doesn't mean we have to in every single instance and in every single opportunity point that out. There is a time to speak and a time to be silent. But I think you're right there. And there are some things that are so overridingly significant that we have to they override everything else. And this plays into the question, like, are you one issue voter? Well, no, I'm not a one issue voter. When mm-hmm. I look at the when I look at a, a candidate for for any political office, I look at the whole scope of what they're saying. However, 
if if they're going to be someone who supports the murder of children, right? I'm not going to vote for that person. It doesn't matter how everything else they could check it off on the box. Every right. other thing would be fine. But if they if they support that, and and again, this is one of those things that as humans we instinctively recognize this. If you were to go to a uh, a, a liberal person, whether they're a, a Christian or not, and say, well, you know, this person fits all of your needs, but they're a terribly racist person, they're not going to mm. vote for that person. Right. But they're also that doesn't make them a one issue voter. It just means that that issue has override power over yes. every other area because it is so significant and so central. And and in point of fact. We're systematic theologians, right? That's that's our jam. You can't abstract her, you know, uh, whether it's Martin Luther King, you can't abstract his Christology, which says that Jesus was an elevated human. You can't abstract that from his anthropology, which says all humans are made in the image of God, because those two things inform each other. You can't abstract um, Justice Ginsburg's um, anthropology, which says that, you know, uh, women are equal and that they have not only equal opportunities and equal rights, but they have so much, they have to be made so equal that in order to be on equal footing with men, they have to be able to terminate the life of their child in order to not be bound to that child. The same way that man theoretically could just walk away and not be bound to the life of that child. So you can't separate those things out in a way that makes them totally separate, not mutually informed issues. And I think a lot of times, whether that's, and, you know, maybe just to trigger everyone else who's nodding their heads in agreement with me right now, <laughs> you have to do the same thing with George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and slavery. Like we have sure. to take those things into account. Sure. We, yes. we have to. Um, yes. You, you also have to take into account where is society, you know, how where does this person fit against the backdrop of their general society? Right. Calvin, uh, in a lot of ways, would be a sort of a backwards hick from our modern standards. But right. in his day, he was actually on the forefront of a lot of justice issues. He was on the forefront right. of taking care of widows. He was on the forefront of educational things. So so we have to make all of those assessments. And it's not easy. I think that's the moral of the story. It's not easy. And where right. I get frustrated is when I see Christians online or, or non-Christians who are who treat it as though it's just this really simple calculus right? Mm -hmm. It's this simple equation. We just plug in a couple variables. It spits out an answer. In reality, it's so much more complicated than that. Yeah, it is. And there's so much in this world that we fail to recognize and appreciate just this common grace. You know, that God is, it's not to say like God is only doing his work in a complete way and a perfect way through Christians alone, but there's some very good things that come about through people who are, you know, God uses in unique ways and profound right. ways in their own sphere of influence or in countries to change the scope of history and to do so in a way that upholds in some respects, some of what are his own principles and character. And so here you have a woman who is, I think by almost any standard, absolutely brilliant and who fought unreservedly for right. many different people, for those whom at least she believed were underrepresented in society. Who among us as Christians would say, well, that was a wrong course of action. Right. In some ways, this goes to show, and I'm really glad you brought up somebody like Whitfield or Edwards. It just goes to show, I think it's like Robert Murray McShay said, that we have in our hearts always and in every way, all the seeds of evil that have been sown. Yes. It's only by God's grace that we get anything right. And I say anything because here you have a woman who is processing everything by all intents 
as we understand it, using the logic given to her. It was a logic that is of the natural man. And so that's what led to this overextension of human rights that resulted in the killing of unborn children. And at the same time, she thinks she's doing what is the best, most best good for all of humanity. And this shows that apart from God, we are sick, sinful people who will be prone to massive mistakes of epic proportions that will absolutely destroy the very thing that we think we're trying to protect. Yeah. So we absolutely need God. So the reformed person should look at this and say like, Lord, have mercy on me that I would right. be among those whom you would save because some get mercy, some get justice, no one gets injustice. And so I think that it's, it's reasonable to look at these lives and to have that kind of reflection at first kind yeah. of pulls us inward to do an assessment, see, test whether or not you're in the faith. And then if we are to make the kind of statements outwardly that would push against this kind of wickedness. But at the end of the day, I feel really humbled because the fact that God would save anyone, of course, that he would open our eyes. And, you know, in point of fact, I think maybe the difference, if I can make this kind of statement, which is really, I'm going to say, honestly, is on the edge here, but maybe the difference between, let's say a person who's not a Christian, somebody like Calvin or Edwards or Whitfield, who, like I said, those gentlemen in particular, the latter, certainly had relationships with slavery that we would look at and say, those are just so abhorrent. Yeah. I would, I like to think, and I think there's a biblical thought that those gentlemen who were regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, that when they stood before God in judgment and God said, yeah, you got this wrong, that they were like, Lord, have mercy on us. Right. Like that, Lord, have mercy on us. That even like people perhaps like Ananias and Sapphira who were struck down by the Holy Spirit himself because of their sin, that when they arrived in the presence of God, were like, you were right, you had to do it and you right. did the right thing in judging us. That it, it's that kind of regenerated heart that can understand and only that heart that can understand the holiness of God, that even if they're struck down, their very lives are ended because they have disgraced or turned against God, that in his presence would say, you are right to do the very thing that you did because it brings you glory. Right. And so I think that's like the difference here, that we're concerned about the glory of God. And yet at the same time, we don't need reformed Christians to try to defend the sovereignty of God. His sovereignty can take care of itself. We don't need to like champion that people have died and done horrible things and therefore are being judged right now. What we ought to champion is the glory of God represented in the mercy of God that even we should be saved when in our hearts are the same seeds of evil, the same logical outworkings that will lead us, like you and I literally to champion uh, abortion as the very thing that promulgates human rights, that is the epitome and the highest level of what it means to be human that we might choose. We would be those people. I would right. be that person. I'll just speak for myself. I would be that person that on a podcast and say, instead of saying this thing, would say, you know what women should be able to do? Choose for themselves whether or not to carry the baby that's in their room right. to term. I would say that, and I can say confidently, I would say that to everybody with an earshot, except for the grace of God. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe to sort of bring this down on a conclusion here is, the Tower of Siloam, right? Jesus is is confronted with these two tragedies. Um, I don't remember the chapter off my head, but it's in Luke. He's confronted with these two tragedies. There's there's natural evil that this tower just collapsed, and there's no moral attribution whatsoever to to the cause of it. And then this other moral evil that's clearly a human moral evil. And uh, he is he's brought this situation is brought to him, and his response is not to say. 
how dare you judge those people? That's how this passage gets used a lot. Right. It's not to say, how dare you judge those people? And it's also not to say, yeah, you're right. Those people were terrible. They really got what they deserved. His response is to say, essentially, but for the grace of God goes you. Right. If you don't repent, then you're going to perish, too. And so so when I look at Christians who I haven't seen it yet, but it would not surprise me if it's out there. Somebody who basically says, like, well, she got what she deserved, not only in in the in the, you know, the judgment of hell, but she got what she deserved with this terrible suffering of Mm -hmm. cancer. Uh, It hasn't been said that I've seen, but I'm sure someone has said it. I've seen it. Similar things said about other uh, other non-Christians who have died. If it was not for the grace of God then we also would die in our sins. Right. And if it was not for the grace of God, uh, then everyone would die in terrible suffering. It, you know, it's not it's not as though Christians don't get pancreatic cancer and die. It's not as though Christians don't, uh, don't have other illnesses. It's not as though towers don't fall on Christian heads or wicked people kill Christians. We know all those things happen. But if it's not for us to look at a situation like this and say, I don't know whether she repented before she did. I really hope she did. I really, really do hope that she she came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ before she died. But if she didn't, then I have to recognize that apart from Christ, there's only one one destiny. There's only one eternal end. And mm-hmm. I have been blessed by God to have been chosen and given the gift of faith so that I can trust in Jesus, not to, for that end, not to come to that conclusion of my life. So I, I just think that as Christians, we need to take a step back. We need to recognize, yes, there is a time to boldly speak about the wickedness of someone's life. Yes. But there's also a time to shut up and let people grieve. Yes. And, sure. and in a situation like where we're at now, I think we have to sort of like dance between those two things, right? Yes. There are some Christians that I'm probably going to message and say, look, I understand that you think what she did was good, but you you also need to recognize that she lived a life that championed wickedness and evil. And she did a lot of damage to our country. She did a lot of damage to our country, to our society, to our families, to our health, to the church, to the world, right? All of those things are true. So, so it's, it's a matter of lowercase P pastoral wisdom to say, this is the time, this is the place, this is the way. I just sounded like I was on, um, the Mandalorian. This is the way, (laughs) this is the way, this is the Um, way. Which is coming back, by the way, soon. I'm I know excited. you're a super huge Star Wars fan now, so you knew that. I am. Um, apparently, there's going to be Jedi, partic- possibly. There might be a Luke Skywalker cameo. Oh, it's going to be great. Man, it's amazing how fast we get sidetracked. Anyway, <laughs> we that's usually a good sing- signal that we should probably bring it to, to an end here. So, Jesse... I've been talking a lot. Do you have any final thoughts or concluding thoughts about this? Before I we actually it like it sometimes when we do an affirmation or denial and it turns into a whole episode. Because yeah. again, as I've tried to make the case in the past, sometimes our affirmations, denials are fairly heavy. They could be their own topics and of themselves. And yeah. I think it's organic that we ended up in this place. And yeah, I just, I'm with you. I, I would say I want to reemphasize that Christians should be the kind of people I think that are humble and gracious, especially with respect to understanding death. And so, you know, even God gives us a standard of him himself posing this question, like, do I have pleasure in the death of the wicked? And I, I have to think that he asks that he puts that in the scripture for us. The Holy spirit enumerates that because our inclination is to celebrate the death of those that we hate, to celebrate the those, the death of those that are different than us instead of the ethic that Jesus gives us, which is to have mercy or to at least be humble. Right. But at the same time, 
I like the way you kind of started this whole conversation that we're not celebrating any person's particular death, but we are in some ways sometimes have to speak out against the cessation of the things that they did, which were right. wicked in and of themselves. Yeah. And to distinguish between the two, I think is a mark that all Christians should work toward in maturity. And it's a difficult thing. It's a nuanced thing. And as we're talking about here, I think it's just important to remember, I'm, I'm thinking back on what I just said before you were talking and wanted to emphasize that I am definitely all about seeing a life and protecting unborn children. In case I came across this weird because I was talking about myself in like the, the opposite, right. but merely to emphasize that all of us on any given day, like this is how I really think the Bible tells us, it explains it to us is when, when Paul says that like you were dead in your sins and trespasses, like we're dead. And of course you've been justified, positionally sanctified, and then moving hopefully progressively yeah. by the power of the Holy spirit towards some place of new sanctification that that truth at the same time does not invalidate that we are at any point in time, or maybe just say, I'm just gonna say me again, like a hair's breadth away from a profound sin and destruction. Right. And that it's really God on any given day. It's not just like God saved us. That is true. And we say that unashamedly at the same time. He also is continually saving us. Like he holds right. us in his hands. That is the perseverance, which is again yeah. by his power. It starts at the day of justification, but it's like as reformed people, we can rest in this comfortable domain that that perseverance is so strong from that first day and all the days forward until we die. And it's because he is great and glorious and gracious to us. And yeah. so because of that, I think we ought not to get too crazy and stop remembering that because he is that gracious, that should shape how we understand death and especially the death of the wicked. So yeah. Kudos to you, sir, for bringing up this topic because I, I wasn't—I honestly, I wasn't really anticipating that we we talk about this very thing. But I do think it, it's helpful because social media, in particular, has made death something that's so more prominent, especially like celebrity-style death. Yeah, and so everybody has something to say about it, and I think it is going to be increasingly the place of Christians to understand how do we address that when in my sphere of influence with my my friends and my colleagues and my family where I might even feel compelled to respond publicly to someone's death. Right. How do I do that in a way that is honoring to God, that gives glory to God and yet is appropriate to express like what is the biblical mandate of what is good and what is evil? Because you know how it is, like how many times have you been in a place where let's say like a colleague has expressed that their loved one has died and everybody is writing things like on the the card, the corporate card that you're putting together, the Hallmark card, greeting card. It says something like, my thoughts and prayers are with you, or this person lived a good life, or they're looking down now from heaven uh, on right. you, and they're in a better place, and things are much better now than they were for them before. And your heart aches over those things. Right. Because you you really don't know that with good conscience, good biblical conscience, you can actually give yourself over to that with those expressions. Right. So this is like a hard thing and we ought to wrestle with it. That, that was like yeah. a really, what's funny is you said you had been speaking for a long time. Then you turned it over to me and I just spoke for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. That's why we, in part, why we have a podcast. Cause we've got that's, things we want to say. That's very so, true. Well, again, this is one of those, we, we haven't had one of these episodes in a long time where I, I feel like I need to go like, I don't know, like cry for a little while, but th this is kind of a downer episode. But I think, you know, when I reflect on, what the proper response of a Christian is in a situation like this, or, or in a situation like you're describing, you know, a personal situation where 
someone at work passes or dies, um, or, you know, someone, you know, dies, um, we're commanded to pray for our enemies, right? So even, even if, uh, we ignore what Paul says about our struggle, not being against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities, even if we ignore that, and we really think Ruth Bader Ginsburg was my enemy, the, right. the response is to pray for the salvation of that person. Amen. Right. That's well also said. pray in precatory prayers. Like I'm not, I'm not opposed to praying in precatory prayers. Like I right. think all of the Psalter is for the church. So pray those in precatory Psalms too, but pray, pray for those who are your enemies. And the prayer for those people should be Lord, save them Lord, yes. bring them to salvation, turn their life around, bring them to a place where they become a force and, and uh, they become someone that you use to accomplish your will. Well, it's not as though we should then suddenly be able to change gears the moment they die and, and not mourn over the fact that at least as far as we can tell, those prayers went unanswered. Yes. Right. If someone was praying for Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Rachel Held Evans, I actually know someone who went to college with uh, Rachel Held Evans and I, I've spoken um, with him. And it's a very sad thing because, mm. you know, he knew her when she was, you know, active in the church and was, you know, was expressing conservative theology. And there was a real sense of loss and, and almost a sense, I think, for some of defeat. Like, oh, the, I guess all of the times we were praying and all the work we put into trying to convince her is gone. And I think we have to be able to come to these situations and say, no matter how you shake it, the death of the wicked is a sad thing. Yes. Right? It's, a, it's a result and a consequence Amen. of the fall. And we should never celebrate the, the, the fall. We should never celebrate the, the corruption that the sin of Adam and, and our sin has wrought on the universe. So, Amen. yeah. So I wish that we had something to bring this back up. <laughs> I guess maybe we tried with a little well, bit of hinting at some new Baby Yoda stuff. Yeah, yeah I or mean, the, the child, is, as they like to call him. I mean, we, we move from the fact that death is tragic, full stop, no matter who it is, to, right. uh, but, you know, like there, there is, and actually this is greatly liberating, I think, there is, of all the names that we're exposed to, all the people we know, of all the politicians that might be in our realm, of all the people in history, there is only one name under right. heaven by which men may be saved. And that name yeah. is Jesus. And so Amen. to be liberated to know that there is truth in that unequivocal and absolute statement, I, I hopefully propels us into a place where we understand death and, you know, loved ones, Christians, we got to get on board with this. We got to process what death is. We got to process how we talk about it because, you know, like uh, just real quick, one of the things that I've been convicted about in the course of our conversations throughout this entire podcast, not just this episode, but the ones we talked about is how we talk about death. And so one of the things that I've actually eradicated from my language is this terminology, for instance, of saying so-and-so passed away because yeah. that actually came into our vernacular by way of Mary Baker Eddy through Christian science because of yep. this idea of like the spirits moving out of the body. And so even this morning, actually, this very morning on the Lord's Day, I saw a good friend of mine whose mother had died this past week. And there was this part of me, I, I leaned over to my wife and said, I just want to say a word of encouragement to him. You think that's okay? And she said, yeah, I think he'll be fine with that. So I went up to him and said, I'm just really sorry to hear that your mother died. I know she was a believer, so I was able to say, I know she's celebrating with the Lord. But you know what's interesting is I think a lot of people would have said, like, I'm sorry to hear that your mother passed away because it takes the edge off of it. Right. And the truth is she died. But in that death, by the power and resurrection of Jesus Christ, she lives forevermore. So we ought right. to celebrate that death is a real thing. 
that we don't sugarcoat it. We don't slap any varnish on it because in get, taking away and pulling off and stripping the varnish, then we celebrate the new life that comes right. in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot to celebrate there. I mean, I wish we could spend like another whole hour just unpacking that <laughs> because that would be like the part two of this that would again, make you get up from your chair and be like, praise the Lord that I am yeah. saved and I live forevermore in his power. And so hopefully there's a little bit of twinge that. So go hug your loved ones, yeah. go pray prayers of Thanksgiving to God for how he saved you. And then maybe uh, go out into the world to share the gospel and with new and renewed energy. And also listen to some screamo music that Jesse recommended. <laughs> I already forgot the name of that band. <laughs> Fit for a King. It's such a great okay. name. Fit for yeah, a King. Yeah. Go listen, go listen to God of fire. In some ways, that's what we're talking about here is like, yeah. if, if we say that God is a God of fire, he's purging that his authority is absolute, that when he brings about righteousness, that's also a stripping away of everything that is also unrighteous that there is like pain in that. And Jesus Christ bore that pain and suffering yeah. for us so that yeah. we might walk boldly, boldly right into the throne room and pray the kind of things that we've been talking about today. Yeah. You guys can't see Jesse's face, but he is <laughs> definitely about to walk, run through a wall. <laughs> Kool-Aid man style. I mean, is there another way to describe this? Like I, I wish I've, I've, I've taken some heat on Facebook for like that metaphor of like wanting to run through a wall, but like, I'm telling you, the gospel sometimes gets me so fired up that I don't know any other way to describe it. It just, I actually think, is it possible, again, in, in peak, we should end with this, in, in keeping with the theme we're talking about here and the fact that God can save anyone, maybe, I mean, this is super weird. Oh, it's going to be super weird. Kool-Aid man, like, we don't know. Like, maybe he's bowing through the wall because, like, Holy Spirit power there. I don't know. I don't know. No, I, no, I don't even my, know where to go from that. So no, I'm just going to say, Jesse, until next time, <laughs> honor everyone. Uh, love the brotherhood. Oh, yeah.